Now, last week, I told you that James had made a switch from talking about how believers were to respond to trials and testing to how believers were to obey the Word of God. Yet both topics were within the broader context of believers displaying godly Christian character and behavior. To that end, we saw that James wrote to bring his audience into conformity to God's will. That is, he wrote to make them obedient to God's Word or to the Word of Truth that he mentioned in verse 18. And the way that James accomplished this was by priming his audience, so to speak, by telling them to adjust their attitudes. He told them in verse 19 to be the kind of people who were quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is because such people were teachable and meek. Such people more readily received the word. And once a teachable, meek person received the word, the implication was that then they could put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So again, last week we dealt with this idea of becoming the kind of people who are teachable and meek, and meek rather, so that we more readily receive the word and obey it. But before I go on, I want to clarify a point from last week regarding this idea of receiving the word. Now I basically said that receiving the word depends on one's teachable and meek attitude. And that's true. However, some confusion could arise if we do not understand clearly what receiving the word refers to in this context. For example, there's a true sense in which receiving the word refers to that moment of salvation where a person repents for the first time and puts their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, receiving the word could be referring to that moment when you get saved. That moment when you receive or accept as true the claims of Jesus Christ and his apostles. But if we take this sense of receiving the word and join it to the idea that we must first adjust our attitudes in order to receive it, then you can see that we butt up against some theological problems. Because prior to salvation, the Bible says that we are dead in our sins and we are unable to respond in spirit and in truth to any such good instruction like being teachable and meek, especially with regards to the word of God. So how should we understand this idea of receiving the word? Well, I did touch on this last week, but I don't think I was clear enough. James says that we are to receive with meekness the implanted word. Note that James refers to this word as already being planted within the believer. There was a point when the person did not believe, and so there was no word planted in their heart. But then, when God gave them faith and they believed, at that point onward, the word was implanted in their heart. So what that means is that, in this context, James isn't telling unsaved people to receive the word, although they do have to. Rather, he's telling already saved people to receive the word. And so receiving the word in this context carries the sense of a Christian gladly hearing the instruction of the gospel and then being obedient to it. And let me give an example of what an already saved person receiving the word looks like. Now, you're a believer, but you bear negative feelings against a brother or sister in Christ. You're tempted with feelings of animosity towards them. Now here's what receiving the word of truth looks like. The gospel tells you that you must love your brother or sister in the Lord. So how can you hate one for whom Christ shed his precious blood? How can you hate 
one whom your king loves. And according to the gospel, Christ Jesus is the head of the church, and we are his body, knit together in one. The hand cannot seek separation from the arm. So how can you seek separation from your brother or sister? So you see now that when these gospel words of truth come to you, when these words of rebuke and correction from the gospel, when those come to you, believer, you are to receive them with meekness and gladness. You have sinned and thought and deed with regard to your brother or sister in the Lord. And in your shame and pride, you may want to double down and make excuses as to why you're justified in your sin. But James is saying, no, humble yourself and receive the implanted word with meekness. Don't fight against it, thinking that you know better and that you must have things your own way. Rather, repent and obey what the word demands of you. So this is what I meant when I said that we must receive the word. Well, if that cleared up, let's get into our big idea for this morning. And it's this. After you have listened to God's word, be sure to also act on what you've heard. Now what's happening here is that James is laying the foundation for the rest of his letter. As you know, we're at the end of chapter 1, and there are five chapters in James. So the rest of James' letter is extremely practical in its instructions. For example, James goes on to tell us how to behave when a rich person comes into our assembly, and then a poor person also comes in. How do you treat those people? He tells us that we need to care for the helpless, and that we should be careful to control the things that we say. He tells us not to boast about tomorrow as if we are in control of the future. These things and more he talks about. You see, James' letter has been recognized throughout the millennia as being very practical and even pithy in its instructions. Pithy means concise and forcefully expressive. So it's kind of like the Proverbs in that regard. Short and sweet. And so because of this, some have wrongly classified James' letter as not being very theological in nature. Again, since James spent most of his time focusing on practical exhortations, rather than expounding on some theological point, like St. Paul does. Because of this, some say that James' letter isn't focused on theology. But this is incorrect, since James bases his practical instruction on theological realities. The theological reality that underpins all of James' practical exhortations is that those who claim to have received the word will prove it by works of righteousness. And those who claim to be children of God, because they have merely heard his word, yet do not obey it, they are fooling themselves, deceiving themselves. So James isn't just offering good, pithy advice about what to do and what not to do. No, he's making a very important theological point. It's the same point that the Apostle John makes in 1 John 3. We would have covered this some time ago as our brother is going through 1 John. And that text says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So James agrees with John when he says in verse 22 of our text, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only 
deceiving yourselves. To show you again just how serious this theological point is, let's take a quick look at that word deceive in verse 22. Now, I don't really know how to pronounce Greek very well, so forgive me if I'm butchering this if you know Greek. The Greek word used there for deceive is paralogizomai. And it's only used twice in all of Scripture. Once here in James, and once in Colossians. And usually when you see a word that is so rarely used in Scripture, it means that the word has a distinct meaning or a particular nuance to it. And regrettably that nuance is lost in our English translations. And so I'll try to give you an idea of what James is getting at with the use of this word deceive. I want you to imagine that you were a caterer. And you left me in charge of packing up some cake slices for lunch that you were working. And just as you're ready to deliver, you ask me if all of the cake slices are ready. I don't eat five of them. But I deceive you, and I tell you, yes, yes, they're all ready. Good to go. Now, it's not just that you were lied to. Sadly, now my deception has caused you to miscount or miscalculate or misevaluate your readiness to cater this lunch. And when you show up missing the people's cake, there will be disastrous consequences for your business and reputation. Well, friends, the disastrous misevaluation of those who deceive themselves by only being hearers of the word but not doers is that they deem themselves right with God when in fact their lack of righteous deeds and obedience shows them to be without genuine faith and still headed for eternal punishment. So being a hearer of the word only and not a doer has disastrous eternal consequences. Don't think that just because you know who Jesus is or because you come to church and listen to preaching or because you read the Bible sometimes, don't think that these things that you do do you any good unless you truly receive that which you have come to know about Jesus. Unless you truly receive what you hear in the sermons and read in the Bible. Having heard the word of God, you must show that you have truly received it by obeying it. If you know that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he is the Christ, then you must respond to that knowledge by submitting to him and believing in him as Savior. If you hear in the sermons that you ought to repent of, say, sexual sin, then you must actually do so. If you read in the scripture that you ought not to lie, then you must obey and speak the truth. You are only deceiving yourself if you think that you and God are okay when you habitually fail to act on what you know. And so James uses an analogy to explain what it's like to be only a hearer of the word. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. Now this is a great analogy because it provides us a helpful context for us to be able to engage with this idea of seeing something that is true and then failing to keep that true thing in your mind such that it fails to have any effect on how you live. Let me give an example using the same analogy. Imagine you to leave home to run some errands, but you've just woken up from a night's sleep. So before you leave the house, you take a look in the mirror. What you see is that your hair is a mess, you've got mucus in your eyes and in your nose, 
Your face is puffy and oily, and there's food in your teeth. Now y'all already know what I'm going with this. As soon as you step from in front of the mirror, you forget what you saw. <laughs> as far as you're concerned, you are your usual attractive self. So you leave home and embarrass yourself. You see, because you instantly forgot what you saw and what you knew to be true, you failed to act on it. Had you held the truth of what you saw in your mind, you would have done something about it, you see? Had you remembered what you saw, you would have washed your face, tidied your hair, and brushed your teeth. You would have saved yourself the embarrassment of leaving home looking like you escaped from something. Friends, this situation may sound absurd. After all, who would look in a mirror and seeing such horrors instantly forget them and fail to, rec to rectify them? Who would do that? Yet, brethren, the absurdity is the point. James' point is that those who hear the word of God and fail to hold what they have heard in their hearts and fail to act on what they have heard, they're like a person who would look at themselves in a the mirror and instantly forget what they saw. James really drives home the absurdity, the foolishness, indeed the insanity of being so close to God's revelation in his word and failing to act on it. Failing to do it. So the point. Do not be hearers of the word only. But also doers of the word. James then encourages us by saying in verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law. The law of liberty and perseveres. Being no hearer who forgets. But a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. So as opposed to those hearers of the word only, who are likened unto fools who would forget their own face immediately after seeing it in a mirror, those who look into the perfect law, or the law of liberty, that is the gospel, it is they who persevere in genuine faith, being doers of the word. Doing the word provides strong evidence that you really do believe the gospel. Now there's quite a bit to break down here, so... First, let's look again at what we are being told to receive. We are told to receive the perfect law or the law of liberty. James continues his mirror analogy, but instead of the imagery of a person looking at himself in a mirror, we get the imagery of a person bending down to look into and examine closely what is called the perfect law or the law of liberty. Again, this is the gospel. This is the word of truth from verse 18. This is the implanted word which is able to save our souls from verse 21. It's the same thing. And it's called perfect because it contains all of the truth and knowledge necessary for a person to receive the forgiveness of sins and be reconciled to God. It is not lacking in power to save, and so it perfectly saves. This is as opposed to the law of Moses that only had the power to condemn because of man's weakness to sin. Rather, the perfect law of the gospel has the power to transform a person's life and cause one to conform in spirit and truth to God's will. And of course, the gospel is the law of liberty. For one, because the gospel frees us from the toil of trying to earn our salvation. And two, because those who abide by this law 
are freed from their bondage to sin and the power of death. Now let's be careful about that. It's not the law of liberty because now that you are in Christ, you have the liberty to sin as you like. Some people interpret this in that way. But no, that's deception. Remember, James has made this point to us already. Those who only hear the word and fail to, to, to do it and live as they like are deceiving themselves. So the law of liberty has to do with being liberated from having to work for one's own salvation. And it has to do with liberty from sin. Under the gospel, salvation is a free gift and you don't have to sin as if you were a slave to sin. And I think this point is worth stressing. Let's make no mistake, friends. The gospel is law. We often think of law as only referring to the old covenant law of Moses, which we are no longer under. Instead, we know that we are under grace as opposed to law. And it's not wrong to talk in this way since this is how Paul talks in, say, Romans 6. But we need to understand that when we speak about ourselves no longer being under the law but under grace, we should be doing so simply to draw a distinction between the law of Moses and the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the one hand, the law of Moses was a way of salvation that every man had to work for and earn. And on the other hand, the law of the gospel is a way of salvation that is given as a free gift and cannot be earned. That's why it's called grace. So again, let's be clear on what the distinction is. The law of Moses is man earned salvation, while the law of the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gracious gift. The distinction is not one where the law of Moses is law, but the gospel is not law. It's not a case where the law of Moses needed to be strictly adhered to because it was law, but the gospel need not be strictly adhered to because it's not law. That's not what we're dealing with. No, friends. Both are law. When Paul addressed the Areopagus Areopagus, in Acts 17, he said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Friends, believing the gospel is not an optional thing. It is something that all people everywhere are commanded to do. It's the law. And those who break this law by rejecting Jesus in disbelief will face eternal punishment. Indeed, the gospel is law and therefore must be believed. And the commands of Jesus given through his apostles must be obeyed. And James is clear on this when he refers to the gospel as the perfect law and the law of liberty. Because I know for some it may sound uncomfortable to refer to the gospel as law. And that's what James is doing. He calls it the perfect law and the law of liberty. And pursuant to our point about being doers of the word and not hearers only, James uses this language of law on purpose. Because he's driving home the point that the gospel is not a free-for-all in which a man may say he believes and then live as he pleases. Acts of righteousness must accompany our profession of faith in order for that profession to be genuine. So friends, let us not find this wearisome. The law of Moses was a heavy burden that no man except Jesus could lift. 
but the burdens of the law of the gospel are easy and light in comparison. We are not being commanded to do these acts of righteousness in order to earn our salvation as under the law of Moses. Our salvation has already been won by Jesus Christ on the cross, by his death, burial, and resurrection. Rather, these deeds of obedience flow out of grateful hearts and love for our Savior. So even though the gospel is law, it is an easier law. Indeed, a perfect law and a law that liberates. And so after understanding all this, remember the mirror analogy that James uses. Remember how the fool looks and then immediately forgets. A true believer does not forget. James says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Brothers and sisters, we must hold the truth of the gospel in our minds. We must truly receive it in our hearts. Because when we do, we will show that we have received it by doing it. By obeying the commands of Jesus Christ. Again, this is why James refers to the gospel as the implanted word. Those who have truly received the gospel, having it implanted in their hearts, deep at the core of their hearts, will do what the gospel requires. And that seed will produce the fruits of righteousness. Finally, brethren, we can see why James can say, he will be blessed in his doing. Listen to that again. In his doing. As you go about doing the word of God, as you go about obediently performing the acts of righteousness that are to be evident in those who belong to God, you will be blessed. God, through the word that he has caused to be written and implanted on your heart, will help you to perform deeds pleasing to him. This is a promise from scripture. Remember what Paul said in the Philippians. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul also says to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 10 of his letter to them, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Believer, God blesses the work of your hands and feet when you obey his word. He provides the spiritual and physical energy to perform righteous acts. So don't be discouraged by James' call to action as if you were alone in the doing. No, you are blessed in the doing. And ultimately the works you do for the love of Christ will abound in reward for you in this life and in the one to come. Hold on to this promise. Keep this promise firmly in your minds. Don't forget it. So friends, after you have listened to God's word, be sure to also act on what you have heard. Don't deceive yourself by thinking that mere proximity to the truth makes you right before God. It doesn't. Rather, receiving the word of truth, receiving the gospel of faith, is what makes you right before God. And all who truly receive it, do it. <laughs>